Welcome to the Pilot Podcast, where we watch the pilot episodes of TV shows to answer your question, should I watch this? My name is BJ. And my name is Me Too. And this week, we're checking out Lock and Key on Netflix, AJ and the Queen on Netflix, McMillions on HBO, For Life on ABC, and Mythic Quest Raven's Banquet on Apple TV+. So stay tuned to the end to see whether BJ makes a ton of money, loses a ton of money, or creates a video game. You know, if you make a video game, you really do all of that. That's facts. So what do you want to start with? Let's go with the one that scared me. Lock and Key on Netflix. Beach, let us know what happened. So Lock and Key on Netflix is actually an adaptation, and we're following the Lock family with siblings Kinsey, Tyler, and Bodie, and they are with their mom Nina moving from Seattle to the small New England coastal town of Matheson. They've now inherited their father's family home called Key House. And once they arrive into this new home, they find out there are a lot of mysterious things going on and lots of keys that can do unexpected things. So Me Too, what did you think of this setting and kind of the world building they were doing with Key House and the Locke family? As I understand it, in the graphic novels, they're much more violent the depiction of Rendell's death is much more violent. And in this show, it feels more tame. And it focuses more, I would argue, on the family's grief. So we see a bit of the magic in the house, but we more see how they're reacting to this new town and reacting to their new reality. And I thought that was compelling. I like that they've tried to focus on the people first. I can definitely see the magic and supernatural elements picking up in later episodes, but this gives us a chance to connect with the characters before we dive deep into all of this backstory, which I can tell is waiting for us. That's for sure. So how about we start with Bodhi kind of bringing us, the audience, into this world of magic. So the first hints we get are Bodhi exploring the grounds of the new home, and he finds a well house, and he starts talking to the well, or really, he just starts talking into it to hear his own echo, and then he hears a response. Was this the first moment that you got a little scared? I got scared way before that. To my fellow babies listening, maybe that's what I'll call us. I think I've used that term before. The show has an opening scene that is also scary. So I was on edge for all 50 something minutes of this premiere episode. That's a long time to be tense. Yeah, it was like when you and I tried skiing for the first time where I just never relaxed my body. I do think though, that they fell asleep at the wheel when it comes to Bodhi. Because the problem for this family is they're all existing in this trauma and grief of losing the father figure. And they almost all witnessed his death in one way or another, and the aftermath of his violent murder. So no, none of them are in a position, including the mom, Nina, played by Scandal's Darby Stanchfield, to take a step back and say, hmm, we really need to go to counseling, or we really need to maybe not jump right into school, or we really need to take a look at our youngest brother who keeps saying that there is someone in the well talking to him. Because whether or not you believe it, I think that would require a second look by a professional at least. You know, we're pulling the 911 Lone Star element of let's just start fresh by moving to a completely (laughs) new part of the country, and that should solve all our problems. The one hope they had was Rendell's little brother, Duncan, 
helped them move into the house, but then he got out of there as quickly as possible, which I also thought was a red flag that they ignored. In the graphic novels, apparently, Nina is struggling with alcohol use issues. Oh. So that in the novels explains why she is, I think I wrote in my notes, falling asleep at the wheel. I think the explanation on the show is, which is understandable, overwhelming grief. Yeah, they don't give a good reason for her choice of coping with this and how she's helping her kids cope with it. So how did you feel about their friends? Because they're new to this town and immediately Kinsey and Tyler start to meet people and gain some social currency at their school. I think even though it's going to be rough because everyone in this town knows what happened to the Locke family and apparently knows more than they're letting on about the key house, it's good to socialize during this time. I kind of felt bad that Bodie is just wandering around the home all day. Isn't he school age? They say his school doesn't start for another week. Oh, okay. I was wondering why he was just left alone. <laughs> But yeah, even the mom leaves. It's just like, I got to run to errands, just chill in this giant home we know nothing about. That's probably not up to date or safe. BRB. Are they the locks to the keys? Yes. So will there be holes in them that the keys can go in? We have hints that the keys can go into people, not just keyholes in doors. Okay. Interesting. I just thought it was a play on words. Lock and key. It's both literal and figurative. But they're actually locks. So Bodhi is the first one to tap into his power. He unlocks a key. But not in himself, though, listeners. So- I don't know. uh, We got distracted. Uh, Sorry, I just made a quick discovery about the name. Back to the kids in high school. Yes. So they're building these new relationships. And I think that's going to be critical even for the family And I'm wondering what you think. After all of this trauma, will going on a magical adventure be a good way to help them move forward, reach some kind of closure with their father? There are potentially hints in this first episode that the kids are the only ones who can see the magic, which means whether this magic is good or bad or in some sort of gray area, they will have to band together because... They they basically already don't have Nina as a support system, but they certainly won't if they're the only ones who can contend with it. So it could be good for them to have that bond. Bonding over a healthier activity would be better, but this is a Netflix show about a lock and key magic universe, so this could be good for them. I agree. Why not? They have a key that can literally take them anywhere that's going to open doors to magical places. They have to have a little fun. Agreed. Last question, Beach. Where do you see the show going next? I see them heading into a kind of tug of war with the Echo in the well. We have some hints that maybe the Echo is manipulating Bodhi. And I want to see how the siblings can handle that. What about you? I don't know if I see this for the show or if it's a hope, but it's along the lines of what you said. I just want everyone to wake up a little bit and wrap their arms around Bodhi and help him whether or not they believe this magic stuff is real. Okay, believe the kid. So Beach, what would you give Netflix's Lock and Key? I would rate Lock and Key would watch again seriously. Oh, I'm going to go to the end of this story, see what more keys they find, what locks are left in this home, and hopefully unravel this mystery with the Lock kids. What about you? 
this story really interested me. So my rating might be would watch again casually. So to finish the story, mm-hmm. but after asking BJ how scary it gets, because if it remains scary, then to be honest, I won't be able to watch it, but I'll probably read recaps because I'm certainly interested in figuring out what happens next. Interesting rating. BJ, you've given many a rating that's like, would watch if Me Too spends three hours of her life to let me know if it's worth it. So you're welcome. I'm giving it back to you. Anyway, do you want to talk about another show that has a kid? Another show that features a shady kid whose background we don't know yet. And people might not believe everything that kid is saying. Yes, you're talking about Netflix's AJ and the Queen. Tell us about it, Me Too. AJ and the Queen stars RuPaul as Ruby Red. She's a Manhattan drag queen who's ready to open her own club in Queens. Queens in Queens is the name of the club. And uh, she learns that her boyfriend stole all of the money that she saved up for her club. And now she is on this cross-country um cross-country journey to Miss Drag USA to try to win some money, win the competition, do some tour stops on the way to get the money back to open her club. And she's accompanied by a young child, AJ, played by Izzy G, who sneaks and schemes her way into Ruby's life. A little rascal. Exactly. So me too. We have Ruby Red, also Robert, who's in this unfortunate situation. Yes. And I think it's just due to Robert being very naive. How did you feel about really this falling down and out that we saw in the first episode? We talked about this a little bit before we recorded. I never want a victim blame. But why did Ruby tell everybody at the club how much money she had? Why did Robert announce to everyone he encountered how much money he'd saved up for this club. Why, you pointed this out, did Robert keep the bags of tip money from the club on the windowsill that is by a fire escape and there was no curtains, no metal grates, nothing stopping someone from just opening that window and grabbing the money and bouncing? Why didn't Robert know his boyfriend's address was a KFC? Why didn't Robert look into his boyfriend at all? Y'all, Robert's boyfriend cleaned him out, and that's awful. And we find out that the guy is a con man, that he's actually married to a woman, so he may not be queer. And Robert realizes he doesn't know his real name, doesn't know his real address, doesn't know anything about his family, but they've been together for a year, which is still a short amount of time to combine bank accounts. and. Yeah, I think it was seven months, so even shorter. I don't know why he trusted him, but it is difficult to date in a big city. And then you compound with that Robert's age, Robert being a drag queen, Robert having this nightlife and being super busy. I bet it is very difficult to get out there. So I could also Mm -hmm. see reaching seven months in a relationship and being really excited and considering that like marriage. Yeah. And you're flattered that someone is interested in you and is supporting your dreams of opening a club. Saying all the right things. The only relationship I like for Robert is his best friend that lives with him, a drag queen named Coco Butter, played by Michael Leon Woolley. She is blind and she is still able to do all of her makeup and cut cake and serve champagne to Robert to celebrate $100,000 for the club before they were robbed. And that's the only healthy relationship in Robert's life because Coco Butter is really there for Ruby. 
and for Robert. Though I absolutely loved the portrayal of Cocoa Butter, I do have to say, as we discussed with C and with a ton of other shows at this point, the person playing the role is actually not vision impaired. So this person at <laughs> least did a better job than the cast of C, I would argue, playing a blind person. Yes, more convincing. Much more. Which, you know, you could still get a, a real blind actor. Yes, that was always an option. So you've already named off Ruby Red, Cocoa Butter. I know you got excited because you saw some other faces in this episode. You want to give some shout outs? Yes. Y'all, if you like drag, if you like drag race, if you follow certain very famous drag stars, there's quite a few in the show. Some of the guest stars include Alexis Mateo, Bianca Del Rio, Eureka O'Hara, Manila Luzon, Mayhem Miller, Porkchop, Valentina, and of course... Miss Vanessa Vangie. Miss Vangie. So it was very cool to see them in this show. You know all of them. Wow. I love Drag Race and I love Drag Stars. I know. So me too. There is an elephant in the room and that elephant is in the form of a small child. I was going to say it's a tiny little (laughs) elephant. (laughs) We need to talk about AJ in the title, AJ and the Queen, and also the narrator of this show. Okay, that's the thing. I think that no matter what you say about RuPaul and RuPaul's politics, about what he does or doesn't do with his shows and his media, one thing that you can't take away from RuPaul is he is a groundbreaking star. The fact that a Black drag queen is this successful is remarkable. So it did frustrate me a little bit that RuPaul is not the center of this show. The show is about Ruby and Robert. Mm -hmm. But like you pointed out, it's narrated by AJ. It's AJ and the queen, not like Ruby and this annoying little kid. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not as catchy as show title. I'm not sure. I'd check that out though. Me too. I would click on that. That's for sure. I'd be like, oh, they're keeping it real. (laughs) Let me look at that. So that did frustrate me. It was frustrating and They give AJ a sad backstory that AJ's mother left about a month ago and AJ, they have to fend for themselves, begging and stealing for money and food. But they don't make AJ likable. And we see the beginnings of this relationship where Ruby is going to help AJ out and kind of find their way. I guess there's going to be some pseudo parent-child relationship that forms between them. But AJ is just rude and annoying. Yes. AJ was really annoying, made up a ton of excuses, kept crying. But I did think that that contributed to the campy fun of the show. In that, BJ, I'm not sure if you've seen the, I think his name is pronounced Jay Nadaj. I think it's just Jaden backwards is the last name on that. This person is a Twitter account and he makes these really funny parody videos of Hallmark Christmas movies be like, or BET original movies be like, or Disney musicals be like. And he does these elaborate two minute stories of the campiest version of these stories that are needlessly dramatic. And that's what this whole show felt like. So maybe AJ was a little (laughs) street urchin style character Mm -hmm. and intentionally super schemy and annoying so that your heart fills even more for Ruby being this mama character, or even for Robert being this parental figure for AJ. That's a good point. I definitely picked up on the Hallmark movie vibes when Robert and his boyfriend were having their little dinner date. Yes. 
And so I can now see AJ as the Hallmark Christmas movie villain. Yes. Hyped up energy, very in lane of I am a little street urchin who's going to steal from people. But maybe it's like the Grinch where AJ's heart will grow three sizes by the end of the show. How many episodes will that take? I think all of them into the Mm. next season. Because the voiceover also indicates that AJ has some kind of long con going on because right at the top of the episode, AJ goes, Ruby has no idea what's coming. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what AJ did or is going to do. Let's head to our ratings and let's answer the question. Are you going to stay tuned to find out what happens to Ruby, Red, and Robert along with AJ? I think I can predict your rating. So okay. for me, <laughs> I'm going to watch again casually. I don't want to binge it, which is why I'm not saying seriously. But I will finish the story and I will explain to you what happens because I think you're not going to watch any more episodes. I would also recommend to our listeners, if you want to watch the show or not, to check out Trixie and Katya. They're these two amazing drag queens and they do this YouTube series and they did a review of the whole series of AJ and the Queen that is filled with spoilers, but very, very funny. Oh, so I should just watch that. I think for you and our listeners that are not interested in this show, perhaps that would be most appealing. Yes, because I would not watch again. I know. I thought it was fun. There's definitely a lot of potential there and a lot of people will enjoy the show. But in the meantime, let's head to another show that's all about money problems. McMillions on HBO. Beach, explain the case to us. Sure. So this is an HBO documentary, and it is about the McDonald's Monopoly game, which went from about 1989 to 2001, where, get this, all those big prizes of cars, boats, homes, $100,000, a million dollars, none of those went to legitimate winners for over a decade. idea of it oh i'd be so mad if you were the one that's caught in our little network of people (laughs) stealing uncle jerry (laughs) yeah i'd be so mad (laughs) this is why you can't do business with family even if it's the business of lies and these lies are being investigated by the fbi so we're actually seeing interviews and footage and case information from fbi agents who are investigating Operation Final Answer to find Uncle Jerry and all of his conspirators who conned McDonald's. Yes. So what did you think of this whole setup? This The question of who conned the Monopoly game at McDonald's? Initially, I wasn't so interested in watching the series. And I don't know that I would have had you and I not agreed to do it for an episode. Because I read a Daily Beast article about what happened, and that was super compelling, and I was done. And I didn't think that I could be made to care about people stealing even a million dollars, two million dollars from a corporation that makes billions. Mm -hmm. But they made it so fun. The pacing of the show is so fun, and I realized that there's a gap in our lives for crime shows and documentaries that aren't centered around murder. So there wasn't this feeling of guilt around finding it interesting, but then you reflect on the victim and then you feel bad that you're taking this in as entertainment because someone has actually passed away. In this case, the real victim is McDonald's. They lost money. Well, they make billions all the time. So it's fine. It was a guilt-free, enjoyable watch. And you know who I'm obsessed with? Doug. 
He is a star. A star was born by the name <laughs> of Agent Doug on this show. So I was into it. I agree. I think this was a case where they're high stakes, literally millions of dollars on the line, companies' reputations. But it's a fun case. You don't have to feel bad about someone losing their life. And like you said, the FBI team and the other people, even there's a... Um, there's an employee of McDonald's who got involved in the investigation. They are all just cool people. And it was yes. fun hearing them describe what went on. Even the way they talked about how they chose the case. Doug said that he saw a post-it note on his superior's desk that said someone called and gave them the tip that something might be going on with the McDonald's lottery case. And he explicitly said, I was bored working on my cases and then had to catch himself when he said that. And he was like, well, you know, financial law can get boring. And he pursued the post-it because it just seemed literally a little bit more interesting than what he was doing. Yeah. And he was a new agent. So he was like, this is my chance. Let me get a fun case for myself. And he laughed about the fact that with new agents, apparently you find the new case and then your superior takes it back from you once they realize it's fun. It was just a great peek behind the curtain. And like you said, Beach, the McDonald's woman, when she talks about having to go undercover with Doug, they told that story like a couple telling a funny story at a dinner party. Yeah. Remember that time we investigated the guy who stole from McDonald's? Yes. You tell it better than I do. Okay, okay, I'll take this part. That was the vibe I got, even though they did separate interviews. I want to say that also, I think the cool thing about this case, at least if you were a kid growing up in the 90s or just a person in the US in the 90s, I remember the Monopoly game at McDonald's and naively being a child thinking, if I get one more order of fries, this could be the one I'm going to win a boat. Me too. I was not allowed to have McDonald's as a child. But the like few special occasions where we were allowed to go to McDonald's, I would always rip that thing off thinking, this is it. And it's so funny because how does a child feel like they need money? At least a child that like you and I grew up, because people come from different backgrounds, but you and I grew up with our needs met. We're like, this is it. We're going to get the million dollars. It's like, oh, finally, I can get out of this broke down house. Like I lived in the- <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Leave my parents behind and start my life of yachting around the world. That's what I was ready for at like eight years old. I think I was just ready for a Toys R Us shopping spree. Oh, yeah. Million dollars. I can clear all the aisles. All the toys you want. No longer can your mom go, no, BJ, put that back. You have a million dollars. Like, I can have that now. Mom, I have a million dollars. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And it was also interesting, and you hear this from Doug and the other FBI agents, to learn the behind the scenes of how McDonald set up the Monopoly game. So this is all actually done by an external marketing company, Simon Marketing, who designed Happy Meals. And they're the ones who designed these games, which increase sales by 40% when they're running. Makes sense. That's crazy. Just like you said. There's no way that you think I could have just a burger and a drink. But if I throw fries on here for 99 cents, that's another chance I have at this amazing prize. And even the low level prizes were attractive. Yeah. People love the chance of winning. Yes. The chance. Exactly. That's a really good point that it was a peek behind the curtain with how investigations are conducted. And I think we rarely get a peek behind the curtain of investigations outside of the universe of murder. Shows, for example, on Investigation Discovery Channel often talk about how you track a 
killer down. Mm-hmm. But you don't hear often about cases like this. And then a peek behind how McDonald's works was really interesting, too. Yeah. Because the head of security couldn't trust everyone in McDonald's leadership because what if one of those folks were in on it? So it was interesting also to learn about McDonald's security practices. And I was surprised that they had the same head of security for so long. Well, he really fell asleep at the wheel with this one. (laughs) He and Nina, (laughs) both shirking their duties. (laughs) He would not do well on lock and key either. And just so our listeners know, even though this is not a murder mystery, there are some high stakes involved. We start to learn more about this kind of network of winners who are all related in Jacksonville, Florida. And one of them is like a drug trafficker. So we're going to see some real criminals get involved in this. And when you read the article, you learn that it's also people in different parts of their network as well. Ooh. So I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to say which parts of the network they're from, but it's it gets really juicy. And because of them, we no longer have the Monopoly game at McDonald's. We can't have nice things, y'all. Thanks, Uncle Jerry. So me too. What would you rate McMillions on HBO? Would watch again seriously. Again, a star was born with Doug. I want to see that gold suit he talks about in the first episode that he wore to a meeting that he said bored him. So he wanted to jazz it up in some way. I fell in love with the pacing and the way that they did this show. Everything doesn't have to be heavy. And I love that they recognize that. It's lighthearted. It's fun. You'll enjoy it. I agree 100%. Would watch again, seriously. I'm ready to see more of these interviews with FBI agents and McDonald's employees. And I want to know all about Uncle Jerry and his network of winners. And I want to know what they did with the money. Me too. So speaking of breaking the law or not, Let's talk about ABCs for Life. Sure, me too. What's that about? So this show is based on the real life of Isaac Wright Jr., who actually also serves as an executive producer in the show. And he was wrongfully convicted of a crime and after seven and a half years successfully led his own conviction being overturned. And so in the show, we have Aaron Wallace, who is loosely based on Isaac Wright Jr. And he chose to reject a plea deal because he wanted to go to trial. And now he's in prison for life. And while he's working on his own case to get out of prison, he helps fellow inmates in order to rile up the DA who put him in prison, Maskins. So I thought this was a pretty cool setup. Clearly, they took the true story of Isaac Wright Jr. and dramatize and heighten some elements for television. A ton of elements, yeah. I like the idea that this guy is in prison, but he studied hard, stayed motivated, and now he's going to use the legal system to free himself from within. Yes, it is very self-righteous, but not in a way that I would say is annoying. It did make me laugh, though. Nicholas Pinnock plays Aaron Wallace, and I'm not sure if he's from a similar town as Denzel Washington, but did it not <laughs> feel like he had Denzel's cadence of speaking from John Q when he was making all those points about the healthcare industry? For some reason, I couldn't stop thinking about the speeches from John Q when I was listening to him speak. So, me too. What do you think about the kind of setup of the show where he's going to be helping his fellow inmates before he gets to his own case? So in the same way that the show title, Lincoln Rhyme, Hunt for the Bone Collector, painted themselves into a corner because once you find the bone collector, what's next? I feel the same way about For Life. Mm -hmm. I wonder if they'll keep doing this case of the week or case of the moment style where 
we learn more and more about his case and the different ways in which the system worked against him while he works on the case of the moment. And so in this instance, it was someone who was wrongfully convicted of selling drugs that caused an overdose in his ex-girlfriend. She thankfully survived. I mean, it's a fictional show, but still, (laughs) it was nice that she lived. I wonder how many times they'll be able to do a case of the week since the show, the show would become too sad if we just kept seeing him stay in prison. True. We can't watch him sit there for life. We need him to get out at some point. So I'm hoping ABC and the creators behind this show kind of stepped into it with a plan of how long they want it to go. I wonder if they'll have him do cases outside of prison. So he gets out. He still helps incarcerated people. Oh, so then they can keep things going. I can see that. So like he does a season or two, then he gets out. And then maybe one of his loved ones, like his friend or his daughter, ends up in jail. Mm -hmm. And then he's going to spend time trying to get them out because they were put in for life. And then they'll just go through every person in his life. Because he's been in in the show's universe, which I like that they made this point. He rejected the plea deal, which would have been 20 years, but with possible release at 12 years. Yes. And his ex-wife makes the point, played by the incomparable Joy Bryant, that he is three years away from that 12-year mark, which means Mm -hmm. he has been in prison for nine years. Isaac Mm -hmm. Wright, whom the show is based on, got out in like eight years or so. Plus a bunch of time ahead of the trial. So we're already at a place where he has been in prison longer than Isaac Wright. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I wonder if it is he gets out and then he helps family members or friends who have been incarcerated. Or if it's just a look at the system. Because 97% of federal cases and 94% of state cases go to plea deals instead of trial. Mm -hmm. So I like that they had him choose trial. Because I think that that's an important avenue to explore. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if he'll do that for his community as well. Encourage them to fight it versus taking a potentially predatory plea deal. Yeah, that will be interesting. And I think it'll be complicated because we see him being pulled in a lot of different directions. In order to even get to this position where he could become a practicing attorney, he's working closely with the warden at the prison. You've already mentioned Maskins, who hates him, essentially. Hates so that's <laughs> Just to keep it simple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's another person who's actively trying to sabotage him on the cases that he chooses. And we see from different perspectives that his relationship with his family has uh, some layers going on. And I bet that that will be even more juicy. So the conflicting interests of the warden and the DA and his family and his daughter and the warden's wife, who's also running for DA, because one of the executive producers on the show is 50 Cent and 50 Cent's other very successful series, Power, which already has two spinoffs, is the height of juicy drama. I've never seen Power, but I see social media overtaken by it every time there's an episode. And I bet 50 Cent will bring that juice to for life as well. Well, are you ready to rate me too? Yes. Beach, what would you give ABC's for life? I think I would give this would watch again casually. I like the setup, the premise, what Aaron Wallace is working towards. So I'll check in and out to see, is he making progress towards getting out of prison? I agree. I thought that the case of the week structure was interesting. So I would also watch again casually in that I'll be interested in the different cases he takes on. I'll be interested in his pursuit of of freedom. 
but I won't need to watch every single episode. It'll be like watching Law and Order, just a fun procedural to jump in and out of. Mm-hmm. All right, switching gears. I don't think there's a natural segue between wrongful imprisonment and the problems of the justice system and video games. I see the connection, but okay. What is it? Can't give you the answer. Okay, sure. I want you to discover for yourself. I believe in you. So that sounds like you want me to go on a mythic quest. Beej, let us know what happened in the pilot episode of Apple TV's Mythic Quest. Sure. So we are introduced to a video game studio, and they have created this amazing popular video game called Mythic Quest, which is a massively multiplayer online role-playing game, very much in the style of World of Warcraft, but also taking inspiration from games like Assassin's Creed and Dragon Age. And it's led by their creative director, Ian Grimm, and he sees himself as this big dreamer who wants to be on the same scale as Steven Spielberg or George Lucas, and who creates iconic works of art that fall into pop culture like E.T. or Avatar and Star Wars. And to continue that legacy, they are now producing an expansion pack for their game called Raven's Banquet. And this whole show, we are meeting his team, his executive producers, the engineers, the writers, the head of monetization, because that's all that's going on in video games nowadays. Yes. As they put together the best video game they can. What'd you think? I thought it was really funny, and I am not fully immersed in the video game world, though both you and my partner love them, so I have some knowledge, and I thought it was a a cool commentary on video game culture as well. In the same way, (laughs) this is not a healthy comparison, but in the same way that For Life was a non-preachy but interesting commentary on justice, policing, the justice system, I thought this was an interesting commentary on misogyny in video game culture, the literally unhealthy work-life balance in video game culture, the egos in video game culture, the fact that you rely on child reviewers in gaming (laughs) culture, but without it feeling at all preachy or self-righteous, it just made me laugh. I laughed for all 30 minutes of this show. Definitely a solid half-hour comedy. You know we love a half-hour. So I think what really brings this show to life and is so funny are the office relationships. And I think there are a few different relationships and characters that really made this episode special. Do you want to talk a little bit about the relationship between Ian and Poppy? Yes, Ian is played by Rob McElhenney and Poppy is played by Charlotte Nick Dow. And he admits to her that she brings his vision to life in a way that he is unable, but he would never admit that widely because of his ego. And it's so nice to see. It's so funny to see their dynamic of him being the visionary, but her having to check his dreams and then figure out how to insert her own. Yeah, she just wants to include a shovel that she created herself. And then the TTP on the shovel was milliseconds. That's the first thing anyone would try. Time to penis. How long was it? I really wanted you to say that, which is why I said TTP, because I wanted you to explain it. You have problems that that got you really excited. (laughs) This is how long it takes for players in video games to take a new item or new tool and then draw a penis. Which is a thing in video games. Yes. We can't have the McDonald's lotto. We can't have justice. And we can't have drawing tools. What else? 
will we have stripped from us? Well, in some cases, like David, we'll have our personal assistant stripped from us. And power and agency and pride and dignity and shame. Do you want to talk about David and Ian and then where Joe kind of slots herself in that? David is the executive producer of the game. He's played by David Hornsby and Joe is his assistant. She's played by Jesse Ennis. And immediately you can tell that David has no power. He tries to call meetings. They happen without his presence, even if he's the one who called them. He tries to set deadlines for the game. That's that's just that's his own mythic quest because Ian <laughs> is the one who controls that. And he has problems with trying to assert any sort of power over what's happening and tries to complain to HR about it, which I think we need to just dedicate time specifically to talk about HR after this. So in that dynamic of David reaching for power, we see Ian undercut that at every turn, intentionally and unintentionally. And then Joe, clearly recognizing Ian is the more powerful person, becomes a loyal assistant <laughs> to Ian to the point where there's a scene in a team meeting where Poppy yells at Ian and Joe yells at Poppy and the passion with which she screamed the actor Jesse sold that so well that I truly laughed so hard I missed the next couple lines and had to rewind yeah and she's also taking notes during a team meeting and whispers under her breath Ian exudes masculinity these game testers are overstepping their boundaries <laughs> So special shout out to the game testers, actually, R Rachel, played by Ashley Birch, who has a very sitcom-y, potentially unrequited love for Dana, played by Imani Hakim. And their relationship also leads into your favorite character, also a highlight for me as well, HR representative Carol. Let's give it up for Carol, played by the incredible stand-up comic and comedian Naomi Ekparagan. She was so good. Basically, everyone misunderstood what HR meant. They treat HR as if it's therapy. So they go and they mm -hmm. sit and talk to her. On the couch, lie down. They lie down on the couch. They connect their problems they're experiencing with what they experienced in the home. David even compares the relationship between Poppy and Ian as the relationship between his parents when they were going through a divorce. And at one point, one of the characters interrupts another one in a meeting with Carol and goes, oh, sorry, I didn't realize you were having a session. <laughs> and Carol is just a victim of all of this. And they shut down her complaints. Yes, she tries to host a meeting to, to explain to them what HR is, and they just completely take it over. You deserve better, Carol. You do, Carol. We're rooting for you. And the last person who demands the most respect in the world of this show is... The streamer with over 10 million followers yes. is only 14 years old, Pooty Shu. <laughs> <laughs> so he is what I believe based off of PewDiePie, one of the most popular YouTubers who streams a lot of video games. And he's essentially an influencer in the world of video games. And so his rating and opinions of the Raven's Banquet expansion will directly influence their sales. He's masterfully played by Elisha Hennig, who was on a show that I liked called Alex Inc. And I'm glad he's landed here at least for a few episodes, I assume, reviewing games. But that character, so good. And that was another commentary on gaming culture where 
they watch his review of their expansion pack, all of them in the office together. And it literally looked to me like a scene from a movie about NASA where everyone is in the control room and they're all watching the big screen to see if the rocket ship successfully launches, if it successfully landed. It felt like a very Houston, we have a situation viewing of his review. I mean, if he didn't give it four b-holes, it would have been a situation. He did remind me of those kids that pull over $20 million a year reviewing toys. They're so lucky. We didn't have that opportunity when we were growing up. Me too. What would you rate Mythic Quest on Apple TV Plus? Would watch again, seriously. It was so funny. And my partner liked it too, because there were a lot of video game Easter eggs that he loved. I would strongly recommend this to our listeners. If you like comedies, whether or not you're interested in video games, this is a very funny show. I 100% agree. This is a comedy that I enjoyed. Wow. I would watch it casually. But I will say the reason that it appeals to me more than other comedies is because of all of the video game Easter eggs and references. Yeah. So it's not just the jokes I'm enjoying. It's actually the commentary they're making on the video game industry. And it's really good. I mean, you noted that they even had some cool commentary about what it's like to be bought out by a larger studio. So there's a lot of cool discussion happening. Yeah. Well-written show. I mean, it's always sunny. I know you don't like it is a great show. So these folks know comedy. I agree. They know what they're doing. They know how to make a popular show. Well, Beach, speaking of popular shows, where can people find more episodes of the Pilot Podcast? They can head to our website at thepilotpodcast.com and they can subscribe to us on their favorite podcast platforms. And if you want more content where we take a deep dive into a single pilot episode of a TV show and give all of our opinions and more, consider subscribing at join.thepilotpodcast.com to be a member of the Pilot Podcast Deep Dive. Our next Deep Dive episode, which will come out the day after this one, is on Hulu's High Fidelity starring Zoe Kravitz. So tune into that. You can follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at The Pilot Pod. You can send thoughts, feelings, show suggestions, feedback, your favorite video games that we should try out to askthepilotpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye.